Please pray with me for a moment. Lord, thank you for gathering us on this day. Thank you for the weather. Though it is frightful, it does such wonderful things for the crops, for the plants, and for the farmers who rely on it. Be with us in this time of rest, as we rest from our work, as we rest from our labors out in the world, as we rest from the tensions and strife. Lord, help us, help all of us, to receive the message you have in your word And to not merely understand it, to not merely give mental assent, but to also hold faith in it and to move diligently in obedience to your word. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us and all the many gifts that you have showered upon us. Be with us as we go throughout this week. Be with those who are sick. Help them to be restored to health and to be restored to our fellowship next week, Lord. Be with those who are being baptized today as they give their public profession of faith joining with you in your death, burial, and resurrection through the symbolism of baptism and the ordinary means of grace that represents. It is in your Son's precious and holy name that we ask all these things. Amen. If you are privileged to have a copy of God's Word in front of you, please open it to the book of James, chapter 4. And... Pardon me while the slides go a little bit uh, a little bit off kelter there. So the epistle of James, the pastor is currently preaching out of Peter, so we're, we're going back a couple books. Uh, the epistle of James is found in the general epistles, it's right after Hebrews, um, in the latter half of your New Testament. It is generally accepted to have been written by the half-brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, though many don't agree with this. Uh, the Catholic Church in general... Uh, Commentators such as Matthew Poole, John Calvin, and others all would dispute this because they hold to a perpetual virginity of Mary that would, of course, exclude uh, James from being the half-brother of Jesus. But we generally accept that it was written by Jesus' half-brother who came to faith after his resurrection. It is written to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, um, or as the NIV puts it, the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. This offers us two possibilities for his audience, either Jewish Christians that have been spread out uh, into Asia Minor and other areas of that Mesopotamian, Mediterranean world, or to the spiritual Israel, the 12 tribes making up both Jewish and Gentile Christians uh, of that same sort. Uh, The big difference there would be when it was written. Um, You know, the church initially was predominantly, almost entirely Jewish And as the word spread into the more pagan areas, people were brought in and came to faith and the churches became a melting pot of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Either way, the epistle as it is delivered today is delivered to the spiritual Israel that is gathered in this place. And I hope to do justice to the message as it was given to them. Uh, It was written to provide encouragement and directions in personal piety and godly living. Uh, There's a lot of encouragement about trials. There's a lot about uh, the promises of God that are given. There's also a lot of things that we we as Christians need to focus on. There's talk about partiality. There's talk about humility. There's talk about bearing with one another's burdens. There's talk about what God accepts as pure religion, all found in this book. And we would do well to learn it and study it, and not only that, but to live it. Um, 
Some books are very easy to theologically assess. You can deep dive theology for a thousand years on one book. Some books are easy to make practical application from. James is a true rare gift in that it's easy to do both. You can deep dive the theology and there's enough practical application to keep you chasing your prayer life for the rest of your days. And you will never regret a minute of it. As I said, if you could turn to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks without purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. I want to examine this passage under the two areas I just discussed. The theological framework and the applicational necessity of it. First, I will deal with the theological framework of it. James 4.1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? The root of strife within the church is not godliness. The fruit of sinful desire cannot be righteousness. These evil passions that we have do not bring about a pious living, do not make the church more holy, and do not make us more sanctified. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is speaking in this passage, and he says to the people, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. James is simply applying this lesson that Jesus taught the people back then. There's a distinction to be made between strife and between uh, contending for righteousness. There's a difference to be drawn between quarreling and having preferences. It is, not, it is not wrong to have a preference. We all do. As soon as you go to the grocery store and look at the soda aisle, you start dealing with your preferences. What James is speaking to 
is the need to take our preferences or the things we want for ourselves and raise them above the things of God. James chapter 2, or James chapter 4, verse 2, says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Covetousness and envy will not bring you closer to God. They are not fruits of the Spirit. They are not means of sanctification. The reason that these things are present and the reason you must war against them and the reason they cannot bring you sanctification is because they are supplanting God. That is, the things that you are fighting, quarreling, coveting, and lusting after have become your God. Now, those of us who have not unhitched ourselves from the Old Testament know that God told Moses when giving him the Ten Commandments, just after he told them they would have no other gods before him and not to make graven images of worship, of worshipful things, he says in the middle of Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God does not equivocate on this point. God does not say, you can have these other things and have me. God does not say, I can coexist with your Buddhist meditations, with your Muslim prayers, or with your Scientology. I don't know what they're doing, but whatever Scientology does. That is not the God we worship. That is not the God of heaven and earth. He does not play second string or work as a team with any other God, no matter what system or fancy methodology we try to develop. Continuing, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. This requires some unpacking, so forgive me, we will come back to this. If you look in your Bibles, in Luke 15, uh, starting at verse 11, it's a, it's a well-known story, the story of the prodigal son. But I don't want to focus on the prodigal son today. I want to focus on his older brother. Because I feel there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this older brother that we sometimes gloss over because we're too focused on the younger brother. Um, all of us who were older siblings can probably relate because we spent a lot of time focusing on the errors and mistakes of our younger siblings and trying to avoid or ignore our own. Starting in verse 11, I'll summarize. A, man has, a man's younger son of two decides he isn't living his best life now and goes to his father asking for his inheritance. And this we may not think a lot about today. Um, but in their time and in their day, if a son went to his father asking for his inheritance, it meant the son had essentially written his father off. That father was as good as dead to that child. It's a pretty ungrateful child. But he's not the focus, and unfortunately this man had two ungrateful sons. Neither seemed to be thankful for the things that he had provided them. So the father acquiesces, and gives the son his portion of his inheritance. The son goes off, and as you know the story, he squanders it, ends up living with pigs, and it just the whole thing goes sideways for him. But then he remembers how good his father treats his hired workers or his servants. 
And he decides that he will go to his father and repent of his ways. Seeing the error, seeing the mistake, seeing the goodness of his father, he will go to his father and beg forgiveness. Not seeking to reclaim his status of sonship, but simply to be a hired worker. Because the hired workers in his father's fields have plenty to eat and have a roof over their head. And he had none of these things. Why was the son going to his father to repent? What sin had the prodigal son committed? Well, he had violated the fifth commandment. He had failed to honor his father and mother. He had put the pleasures that he sought in this life over the responsibility he had to his family. When he asked his father to become a servant, this would at least give him a means to survive. It would allow him to get by. This is what the son hoped for. Well, he goes before his father and he repents. And the father is so overjoyed, he ignores the son's request to be a worker and immediately reinstates him as a son. He orders the band to be stricken up to the, to the cooks to begin preparing a meal and preparing the fattened calf because his son that he also considered dead, was brought back and was alive and was coming back to the family. The one he had considered lost was returned. Well, the older brother was not as excited as his father. And he confronts his dad, and in absolutely respectful and humble terms, he communicates his displeasure to his father. Starting in verse 29, he says, But he answered, this is the older son, To his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. I don't buy that. And yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. How does the father respond to this? Does the father escalate? Does the father tell him to go to his room? No. The father clarifies what the son had failed to realize up to this very moment. He said, the father, this is in verse 31, Son, you have always been with me, and all that I have, all that is mine, is yours. All that is mine is yours. The reason the son had not been able to take a fattened calf and celebrate with his friends is because he had never asked. The one son had sonship and tried to come back as a servant. The older son is living as a subject, and not embracing his sonship. It's amazing the distinction in these two parts. Let's go back to James chapter 4. Do we understand all things are yours? He tells them, all that is mine is yours. Do we understand that everything that is our father's is ours? When President Lincoln spoke to General Meade shortly after the Battle of Gettysburg, General Meade is ecstatic. He had finally engaged the enemy after years of wandering, meandering, and doing much ado about nothing. And not only had he engaged the forces of the Confederacy, but he had driven them back across the river and out of the North's territory. And he says in a telegraph to President Lincoln, we have driven them from our land. And Lincoln writes back, and he is not ecstatic. He is not happy. He is not just swelling with pride at his general. He says, you fool. (laughs) It's all our land. 
For Meade, it was short term. It was the immediate. For President Lincoln, it wasn't over. And how dare his subject not do his job to the fullest. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. All things. The older brother did not get this. And friends, I wonder if we get it. I wonder if we remember it. I wonder if we live like this. Verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So you don't receive when you don't ask, but you also don't receive when you ask out of selfish desire. Remember, I said there's some unpacking that has to be done on this. The same selfish desire that is causing the strife among James's audience is the very same thing that he's talking about. God is not here, lest ye be confused. All I have to do is ask. There's a whole ministry built around the idea of naming it and claiming it. If I say this is mine and I have enough faith, I will be able to make God get this for me. Absolutely ridiculous that we could do anything to make a sovereign and holy God do anything. It isn't simply... That you don't ask. It can't simply be that. Least you take the God of heaven. And make him out to be some spiritual genie. That simply exists to grant you what you wish. God is not. Don't be deceived dear Christian. God is not. About appeasing your need to satisfy your stomach. Or your ungrateful heart that is set on wrong things. He has given you everything. He has given you adoption. He has given you eternal life. He has given you the very breath that fills your lungs. And the life you take up every morning as you get out of bed and go about your day. He has already given you everything. But we are so easily ill content, aren't we? We are so ready to, I don't have this, or I don't have that. And it distracts us, and it draws us away. And frankly, it leads us into sin against the God who has already done everything for us. To say it another way, God is not here to serve your other God. But these gods come from somewhere, right? Where do we get the idea that we should be wealthy or that we should be happy all the time or that we should have this car, this TV, this computer, this phone, this, that, the other thing? We get it from the world around us. If you are a child of the Most High God, you did not get it from Him, so you must have taken it in from the culture around you. 
We acquire our false gods from the pagans around us just as surely as the, the Israelites acquired their pagan practices from the godless people around them. A well-known pastor and author, and I, I won't say his name, but I want you to consider what he says. He says it is true that we must bring the gospel to the city. It is true. But we should also recognize how much the city brings the gospel to us. Friends, the Israelites certainly considered how much the city had brought them the gospel. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up on the mountain. He's been there for a hot minute. Aaron is in charge in the camp, and I use that term very loosely. The people are becoming restless because Moses has been gone for so long, and they think he probably probably just died up on that mountain. So Aaron decides to fix the problem for them. Aaron is going to consider the city and the gospel it has brought them. Aaron gathers the gold plundered from from the Egyptians by the Israelites, and he fashions it into a golden calf. Now these facts will become murky if you read the story later, but this text is clear that Aaron gathered up the gold and formed it into a calf. And you go home, read the rest of the story, and see how Aaron explains it to Moses. Somehow it doesn't go that way in his version of the story. He fashions a calf. But why a calf? Where did Aaron get the idea? Was he just sitting around and thought, I know, a baby cow. We'll have a veal, we'll have a veal god. I don't know. No. He got it from Egypt. Because Egypt had brought the Israelites the gospel of their city. The gospel of Aeopus in this case. Or, as fans of the old Richard Dean Anderson television series Stargate SG-1 would know him, Baal. This is an old Mesopotamian god often depicted as a bull or a calf. And this, this is what Aaron was going to use to rally the people. This was the gospel he had taken from Egypt and was going to give as good news to the Israelites. But the Israelites already had a God. And his name wasn't Apis, and it wasn't Baal. So how does all this work out? If you look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, he, Aaron, took this, the gold, from their hands and fashioned it, with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Had Baal switched sides? Had an Egyptian deity defected to the side of a slave Goshen people and delivered them from the hands of greater gods of Ra, of Isis, of of Hotep, of all these other Egyptian deities, had, had somehow one stray Egyptian god just decided to buck the entire system? Well, that would be big if it were true. But it certainly is not. Verse 5. Now, when Aaron saw this, 
he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That word in Hebrew is not Lord. The word is not Lord. It is what the religious scholars call the Tetragrammaton. It is essentially the four letters that make up the covenant name of God, which we would pronounce in some fashion of Yahweh. He is not saying that I have made you a God. He is not saying that we got this Egyptian God and this Egyptian God has rescued us. No, he's saying that the likeness of this Egyptian God is the God of Abraham. See, the Israelites hadn't adopted Egypt's worship. They only copied a likeness they found appealing. They sought to mix the best of both worlds. The Israelites... Excuse me. The Israelites would later find this disastrous. And we will find it just as disastrous today when we try to take elements from outside that which God has commanded and that which God has directed and move it into the place of our God. But why? Why, why can't we take the best of both worlds? Why can't, we, why can't we diversify our spiritual portfolio? Let's turn back to James chapter 4 and let's look at it. Verse 4, James being winsome and gentle, and, and ever so careful not to offend. You adulteresses. Oh, oops. Maybe not so winsome. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's not a lot of room to maneuver here. There's not a lot of room for the diplomats to him and haw and kind of say, well, sort of this or sort of that. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. He has no second category. There is no third way. There is no neutral position. You are either with God or you are against him. Adulteress, many times in the Bible, shows a close similarity um, between adultery and idolatry, and rightfully so if we consider it. For are we as the church not the bride of Christ? And if we take on another to supplant Christ, have we not committed in our adultery or in our idolatry a spiritual adultery against whose against whom we are the bride of? Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. There are several pastors, and you will see it all over the place. Christian artists in various forms of music. Um, most recently, uh, Lecrae in the Christian rap world. I'm going to use the word Christian in scare quotes in that particular instance. And Amy Grant, who back when I was young, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, um, the, uh, she was a big name in Christian music, have both embraced uh, doctrines contrary to Christ and contrary to the God of the Bible. 
you have parachurch entities that are answerable to no one that are doing this. Uh, all of whom, all of these people, these pastors, these artists, these parachurch organizations, I wish I could nail this verse to their doors. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Now, so many over the last four years have perverted the gospel in order to reach the world, in order to support the world, in order to just be friends, to love like Jesus would. Showing clearly they don't understand how Jesus loves. This choice to abandon the true gospel for another might make them friends with the world. It, it might. For a time. The world will spit them out when it no longer needs them to achieve whatever its new end is. But for now, they will be friends. It, it might get them invited to the right parties. It might get them a seat on the right talk shows. It might get them influence in the halls of power. It might do all of these things. It will most certainly make them enemies of God. Remember the quote from earlier. Like I said, I'm not here to name names. Those people aren't the focus of this message. God is, and he is where I will keep the focus. But remember the words. It is true that we must bring the gospel to the city. That is absolutely correct. That is 100% correct. If the message, in this case a tweet, had stopped at those words, 100% correct. Amen. Let's move on. But it wasn't enough. But we should also recognize how much the city brings the gospel to us. Jesus, Jonah, Paul, Peter, took the gospel to the city, a vile city. Paul took the gospel to cities. Missionary Jim Elliott, in more recent history, took the gospel to a very different kind of city. All these people were faithful to the message God had given them. None of them bothered to recognize the city's gospel. Because that gospel is death to the inhabitants of the city and compromising the true gospel for the city, for the city's lies, would only spread that death to the church. If you don't believe me, look around. Look at the churches that have died. Look at the churches that have fallen. We need look no further than the very place we are worshiping. This church was part of a denomination prior to us occupying it that compromised and compromised and compromised. And slowly, the pews emptied and the building was ill-repaired. And we, as a gospel church, took it on. We've brought life back into it. We've repaired the walls, as they would say. We have fixed the lights. I've seen the, the men working on the lights and painting the walls and getting the plumbing working and getting everything. We have restored this church as a place of worship of the one true God. And not all churches are so fortunate to be able to restore to their proper glory. Some become dental offices. 
or office spaces or secular schools or in some very, very sad examples, Satanist temples. But you need only look around at what has happened in the world when you compromise the gospel of the church with the world. The only thing we need to know about the city's gospel or the world's gospel is that it is a declaration of war against God. The God of heaven and the God of earth. The God who formed everything out of nothing. This gospel of the city is a declaration of war against that God by the things which that God made. That will not end well. That could not go well. As I said, signing that declaration may get you applause. Probably will. You could call yourself an exvangelical and all the other exvangelicals and the, the, the pagans who hate God's church will applaud you and talk about how brave you are. It may get you record deals. It won't get me one because I can't sing to save my life. It may get you book deals. Probably wouldn't do that for me either. It might even get you invited to the important events or get you FaceTime with the shot callers for a while. But as I said, you can be guaranteed signing that declaration will get you condemned to hell with all the other apostates, with all the other people who have made God their enemy. Remember, there is no third way. You are either a friend of God's or you are a friend of this world. The friends of God are redeemed. The enemies of God are condemned to hell. This is the reality of the situation. Look in your Bibles at James chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're going to start with verse 5, and it is a challenge. Uh, if you have a NASB, it's a bit difficult. If you are a Greek student in seminary, it's even worse. Uh, this is very structurally this is structurally very complex in the original language, and equally difficult from a literal standpoint. Um, so, like any time when I run into issues of understanding a verse in my NASB, I will go to a couple other trusted translations. In this case, we're going to look at the KJV and the ESV. The KJV says, Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Was that clear for anyone? It, it didn't help me. I couldn't, I, it just didn't help. The ESV says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This, this is a little bit clearer. This, this I understand. And not only do I understand, because me understanding it is not the touchstone of whether scripture is correct or not. But do I understand it, and does it fit the rest of scripture? Did I just invent some novel doctrine in order to placate myself, or does this fit with the overall piece of scripture? One basic piece of hermeneutical uh, practice is to use clearer texts 
to understand less clear text. If you ever listen to Dr. Richard Barcelos talk about interpreting scripture, he will say that 10 or 12 times. Um, And he's exactly right. You do not use a less clear text to try to make sense out of a more clear text. But many have tried, and with disastrous results. So with a clearer understanding of it, with the ability to look to the text and understand what it's saying, let's now look at the literal sense. And that is what I call the figurative 800-pound literal gorilla. Not literal in the sense of real, but literal in the sense of writing. He says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That's not in the Old Testament. The scripture does not say that. That that sentence is not in the Septuagint in Greek, and it's not in the Hebrew in the the Masoretic text. So how do we reconcile this? We basically have three choices. Inspired books that scripture spoke in have not been included in the canon of our scripture. Canonical books that are included in our canon of scripture have been altered to remove the verse. Neither one of these is acceptable to me. I fully believe that this Bible is exactly as complete as it was intended to be for me to use. I believe that every book that was meant to be in here is in here, and every word in its original writing is without error, and I believe it has been passed down in a way in which, through divine protection, through, through whatever you want to call it, but ultimately it is God, I believe it has been handed down to us in a reliable format that we can trust and does not harm the integrity of the message first delivered. So it cannot be that inspired books were left out. I do not believe that Enoch is an inspired text. I do not believe that the Gospel of Thomas is an inspired text. And ladies, you should be very thankful about that. Um, If you go back and read the later parts of the Gospel of Thomas, that's not good news. Um, I do not believe that canonical books have been altered to remove the verse. I do not believe there's a grand conspiracy to change your Bible to make it say something it doesn't. Not that has been overwhelmingly effective. Now don't get me wrong, there have been terrible translations of the scriptures. There are some you can get your hands on today that will just amaze you. But the true word of God has been passed down in perpetuity for us in a reliable fashion. And we, as English speakers, are blessed to have multiple translations that we can trust. So it leaves us a third option. That scripture speaking to the concept that is found in shadow or in part in multiple places and thus the principle is spoken through the whole of scripture. That's a whole lot of words. What it means is that the general point of the text is this. Scripture is saying in its totality that he makes, that he yearns for this spirit jealously that he has caused to live within us. Not that a particular verse says it but that the witness of Scripture writ large testifies to this. We see this with other doctrines, with the doctrine of the Trinity, with our Christology. The full totality of our Christology, our doctrine of Christ, does not come from one verse. People have tried that too, and it goes equally terribly. 
but it's taken through the compound witness of the entirety of Scripture. Having addressed that verse, we move to verse 6, which is, from a, from a studying standpoint, much easier. Says, but he gives us a greater grace. This verse being simpler is also a greater grace, in a sense. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is actually taken. This I can find in Scripture. Um, it is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 32 through 34, which says, For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffed at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. We see that verse moved forward from the original Hebrew to the Greek, and we can understand exactly where it's coming from. But what does it mean? We hear people say, God helps he who helps himself. We hear that a lot. Um, when I was younger, I kept trying to find it in my Bible, and I couldn't. Um, ironically, everything I found in my Bible was very different than that. Um, not so ironically, it's not from any Christian text. It's from the Quran. It's not from a church father. It is from uh, Quran Summa 13.11, which says, Indeed, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. God will not change the condition of a people until they change what is within themselves. Now, we are in a Reformed Baptistic church. I don't have to begin to tell you what's wrong with that statement, never mind where it came from. We do not change what is in us. That change and the repentance that accompanies it is a gift from God. It is an act of God upon us. If God is waiting for me to help myself to help me, guys, I'm not getting helped. I am going to be left in my death and left in my trespasses. There is no God waiting, you know. God did not wait for Saul to fix his view of Christians before he made him an apostle. No, he pretty much told him with, with utter certainty, you are doing this, you are going to stop, do what I tell you. As he told the man he was sent to go see, he said, this is my chosen instrument among the Gentiles. Chosen instruments do not fix themselves, but rather they require God to intercede into them. Thankfully, thankfully, I don't think anyone's upset that God saved them. Everybody wants to talk about free will, but I don't think anyone that has received the gift of God is like, no, I just, I wish I had my free will so I could rot. No, we are thankful for the gift that God has given us. God opposes those who stand defiant to him and his commands. God honors those who yearn to make every thought and action captive to Christ. The wicked may see temporary blessing. God makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. But indeed, they, and they may indeed. In fact, if they are un, unredeemed, they are most likely living their best life right now. Because after this life is over, it's going to get very bad for them. But God is not mocked, and he will repay them according to their wicked deeds. Just the same. The humble man who follows after God may suffer in the short run. 
Paul was not living his best life now as he wrote Philippians from a Roman jail. He was suffering for his Lord, knowing that the present suffering was nothing compared to what he would receive in Christ, but was to come in the time after. This may last possibly the whole life of the humble person, but he will see God and he will spend eternity with his Father. The proud refuses correction. The humble looks to the wisdom and grace that is gained through God's chastisement. Before we look at verses 7 to 9, it is important to remember what James was addressing at the start of this part of his letter. The jealousy, lust, and envy of certain members towards that which they did not, towards that which they wanted, that they did not seek God for, or if they did, it was done to satisfy their fleshly appetites. James has condemned this. He has, prog- he has diagnosed their condition. Now let's look to verses 7 through 9, where James offers the cure, the remedy to this ailment. Submit, yourself, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It is important to remember what James is talking about here. These stiff-necked people must turn from their pursuits and surrender without condition. Not most of them. Not give them up on Sunday so that they can focus on God. They must submit to God. The only way to end the war with God is unconditional surrender to His heavenly authority. They must resist the temptations of the devil. I heard a joke about a a deacon one day, the pastor's preaching. He says, how many of you just don't struggle with sin? And the chairman of the deacons raises his hand, and the pastor's a little bit taken back. He says, well, well, Brother David, explain to us, how is it you don't struggle with sin? And the chairman of the deacons kind of chuckles to himself and says, oh, preacher, I gave up a long time ago. This is not how we are to live. This is not the way in which we are to glorify God and it is not the way we bring peace to ourselves with God. The devil is the father of lies and we are to resist him at every turn. They must draw near to God. These things are not optional and they are not individual. This is a, this is a collected requirement. They must draw near to God. That is to set their minds on the things of God through the abundant grace God has given in redeeming them, in redeeming his elect. Confident that they are looking to God, it is because he first called them unto him. They must cleanse themselves. Now this is not a cleansing of yourself or a washing of your hands. The text says, wash your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is not washing your hands like Pontius Pilate did. When he, uh, when he stood before the crowd and said, the blood of this Jesus isn't mine. I'm not responsible for this. This is on y'all. He was the governor. He was the one responsible. He couldn't wash his hands of the responsibility for a death sentence that only he could authorize. We must cleanse ourselves of the filth, of the internal wickedness that is within us, of the ways in which sin has impacted our very being. And we do that through our, this process of sanctification that makes us more like Christ and more, more set apart for God's ministry and for His way. 
They must repent and seek spiritually the blood of Christ that covers our sins if we are to be in Him. They must abandon the double-minded pursuit of the world's friendship and association with the church at the same time. You cannot be a blood-bought believer and best friends with one of the tripartite enemies that are stated to us in the devil, the flesh, and the world. You cannot be friends with the world and the people of God at the same time. Countless have tried. None have succeeded. All have had misery as a result. They must see clearly that they are not great or mighty or powerful. We today must see those things. We must see that we are not mighty. We are not great. We are not powerful. They must soberly assess who they are before a holy and mighty God. And they must allow that to shape their hearts and minds to more closely reflect the God they serve, not the world that is passing away. Finally, James, after delivering the stinging diagnosis and a slightly you know, a stinging solution, you know, you go to the doctor because you're overweight and the doctor says you need to run four times a week and you're like, run? Can I do that in flip-flops? No, you can't. You know, it's hard to take the medicine you're given. It's hard to do the things you're told. But James has offered sound, sound teaching on how to end hostility with God and be restored to a right relationship, to be brought into his kingdom. And finally, he promises, friends, in James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Those who make themselves low before God will be raised up by him in receiving the new birth, that is to say the resurrection of the faithful, in vindication at that day of judgment where those words are uttered, well done, thou good and faithful subject, and in glorification where this old tired body is passed on and a new and glorious body built for the new birth is given to them and presented in that glorious city, the new Jerusalem. Those are the theological ramifications of this. By way of application, this, verse, this passage is actually quite simple. She's fine. Don't worry about it. Disagreement is fine. We can disagree. Colin and I can think different cars are the right car. Fords or Chevys. He's wrong, I'm right. Okay. Um, we can have that disagreement. He's the mechanic. Don't trust me. Okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, strife is not. It's okay to have preference. But your preferences cannot damage your relationships. It is okay to want things. It is okay to want your family to live in a nicer neighborhood to have a safer vehicle, to have a retirement savings that you don't have to worry about where every next thing is going to come from. That is all right. But you cannot be so focused on that 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 supplants God as the thing which you are most focused on. We must put to death the passions within us that are contrary to God. That is a real simple sentence to say and it will spend a lifetime trying to do it. But every thought, everything we feel that is contrary to God, we must kill. One of the great old dead guys said, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are the two choices. Friendship with the world has nothing to offer us as Christians. Nothing. 
We cannot compromise our Christian morals, our Christian ethics, or our Christian faith for the world. It will get us nothing. In the words of our former president, it's a bad deal. Bad deal. Worst deal ever. Grace is found in our humility, not our stubbornness. If my wife starts snickering, I understand why. I'm a very stubborn individual. But stubbornness before God will get us nowhere but broken. If we come to God broken, he will put us together. He will raise us up. He will carry us. We cannot do it on our own. And finally, verses 7 through 10 are as application as it gets. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Do not revel in your sin. It is poison in your mouth. Do not boast in it. Do not hold to it. And finally, humble yourself before the Lord, knowing that he will lift you up. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we go from this place, Lord. Um, as we move, even as we move down the hallway, something as simple as that, for we know that we walk in your steps and that you, you are the one who decides our path. Be with us as we baptize these, these believers who are making their public confession. Be with us as we gather as a church to sing and to, 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 to just be enthralled in this process. But also, and, and just as much, be with us as we go into the world tomorrow, as we return to our jobs, as we return to our responsibilities. Give us the strength to stand for you. Maybe we've done a terrible job of it, Lord. I know i failed in many ways. Help us to stand boldly for you, to proclaim your truth, to be like Jonah before Nineveh and proclaim the destruction that is coming to the city, and not like those who would wait to hear what the city has to tell us about the gospel. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done. Be with those who are sick. Heal them, protect their families, and be with us as we, so that we can gather again next Sunday so that we may worship and seek your face, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.